This episode is sponsored by Linode. Linode is offering listeners of this podcast a $20 credit, which is good for four free months at their lowest plan. Their plans start at one gigabyte of RAM for $5 a month. You can get your servers in any of their 10 data centers, and their high memory plans start at 16 gigabytes. Get a server running in under a minute. They do hourly billing with a monthly cap on all plans and add-on services like backups, node balancers, long view, etc. VMs for full control, running Docker containers, encrypted disks, VPNs, etc. You can run a private Git server. They provide native SSD storage, 200 gigabit network, and Intel E5 processors. They have 24-7 friendly support, even on holidays, and a seven-day money-back guarantee. So go check them out at linode.com slash freelancershow. Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode number 278 of The Freelancer Show. This week on our panel, we have Jonathan Stark. Hello. And I'm Ruben Lerner. <laughs> and we're going to talk this week about growing vertically. Or, well, I don't know. Jonathan, why don't you give a bit of an intro to what we mean by that? Right. So I'll start with a story. Story time, people. So in 2006, the very beginning of 2006, I opened the doors on my solo consultancy. So I had been managing a firm for a few years before that and went solo because I wanted to ditch hourly billing and went and did that. And uh, my father was like, so are you going to hire a bunch of employees or like, what's the plan? And I said, no, 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 I'm definitely not hiring anybody. And he was just like, had this giant question mark on his face, like, well, how are you going to grow the business? And I was like, I'm going to just keep charging more money by getting bigger and bigger clients. And he's like, huh, okay. And that's exactly what I did. So I, I tell that story because I hear over and over and over people who are freelancing and perhaps getting frustrated with their earning potential or their earning capabilities. They feel stagnated and, you know, they're, they're maxed out at like a hundred or $150,000 a year in sales and some, some do more, some, you know, work like crazy hours and they have a really high hourly rate. Maybe they'll get up to 250,000 in gross sales, but generally people cap out around 140. And, and when they get frustrated with that, the first thing they think is like, well, I, I have to hire a bunch of junior, whatever it is that I do and pay them half what I get paid and kind of mark up their time basically. And that I think is, is fine if you are the type of person who enjoys managing a team, wants to be a manager, wants to move into the business stuff, stop doing your craft, whatever your craft is. That's great. And it does work. It works for, uh, it works for firms for sure. Uh, but if, if you only want to hire people and grow your business in that way, it's a big mistake. You're setting yourself up for failure. Uh, if it's something that you're only doing because you think it's the path to riches, to breaking through that ceiling that you found yourself up against the hourly ceiling. So, what I would like to explain a little bit today is how to increase your profits without increasing your headcount, which another way to look at that is growing your business vertically, not horizontally, not growing an organization, just increasing the amount of value you provide and therefore the amount of money that you can charge. Is that, that's that great. That's great. And I'll just, I'll just, add, first of all, support that 100% and add to that in that, it is so incredibly common. Now, I, I did this, right? Like, so I started my consulting practice a while ago. Um, it was in 95 or 96. And it was so incredibly obvious to me that 
if I want to grow my business, and by that means make more money, and even work on larger projects, I think. I think that was part of my thought also. Well, I'd better have an army of people who can march in. And what was not obvious to me was what you said, which is when you grow the business, you have less time to spend on the stuff you know how to do well and that you like doing. And you're spending time managing and bringing in sales and doing all the stuff that you didn't become an engineer to do. Now, if you again, there are people who enjoy doing that. Um, and I sort of enjoyed it, but definitely not full time. What was really frustrating for me, though, and still is, I mean, I have an employee who's amazing in every way, but it's hard for me to sell projects for him because people come to my business for me. And then I say, oh, I'm so happy you came to me. I can definitely help you. But the person who will be really helping you is, <laughs> and they, right. they say, what? And I say, oh, no, he's great. And it does not matter how great he is. It does not matter how much I say it. It does not matter what testimonials we can bring. They are not as interested in working with him as with me, not as interested in paying him the big bucks as with me. And so selling projects is just easier to do for myself and my expertise. And besides, I'm more enthusiastic about myself than about someone else. Um, so growing in this way of just finding more profitable things to do on my own is mm-hmm. like now so obvious, whereas mm-hmm. years ago it, it was uh, sounded preposterous. Right. Well, so here's a, here's a, an approach for that situation that you're in. When, when I was at a firm, I was the VP and the boss was a very well-known author in the space. So he'd written a, a number of books and he had become kind of famous for what we did. You know, he would bring in all the clients and to avoid the situation that you just described where everybody wanted to work with him and not with the 10 developers that, that worked there or the, or the 40, I think we were up to 40 at one time. Wow. He would help them become more famous. So he would oh. sort of spread the love. And it, at first I was like, wow, is this guy nuts? Like, it's is super generous of him to, you know, get me an introduction to this publisher and get me on the, uh, get me a column in the trade publication and advocate on my behalf to speak at the conference. Like, why would you do this? You, you should, you know, why would, it was not obvious to me why he would do that. And I, I probably came right out and asked him cause we had a, we had a really great working relationship uh, like, why would you share the limelight like that? And he's like, because I don't want everybody wanting me. That's really and smart. Like, oh, yeah, it's genius. I mean, it's like it was it was in his self-interest to have lots of famous developers working at the firm. It was it, it just made sense. And he was he was a very enlightened guy. Like he recognized 100 percent that he was enabling them to go out on their own, which a lot of us did. But he's just not that kind of guy that was that would want to kind of trap people like, you know, lock them in the basement. So they toil in obscurity and therefore have no other employment opportunities. He's just not that kind of guy. So it was anyway, so that, that was, that's in a way to, that is a way to address the particular situation you're in, but it doesn't change the fact that if, that if you have employees, you're going to be doing one-on-ones, you're going to have to write job descriptions. You're going to have to be hiring. You're going to have to be firing people. It happens. Um, you're gonna have to do a lot of things that if really all you want to do is make beautiful photographs for your, your clients or draw beautiful illustrations or design websites and you just love your craft, you don't want to be firing people, you know, (laughs) every once in a while. It's not fun. So if, if you are trapped and you want to grow your business, recognize that business growth, in my opinion, there's only one metric that matters when it comes to business growth. 
and that is increasing your profits, not your revenue, your profits, the amount of money that is left over at the end of the year. Perhaps you, I would also argue that if you're making a bigger impact on the world, that's another fair metric. But I mean, let's talk about money for the time being. So how do you do, how do you increase your profits? So it's, it's sort of simple. You either increase your prices, decrease your costs or both and preferably both. <laughs> it, it tends to happen at the same time as you, as you find yourself being able to increase your fees, you can decrease your costs and that creates more profit for you. And then the obvious question there is like, well, how do you increase your fees? You know, you probably feel like everyone will say run screaming if you increase your prices. And the, the answer to that is you have to provide more value. So, right. Cause the, the, the thing that many of us do have done over the years is every like year or two, I'll go to some clients and say, you know, we've had a good relationship and you really like my work and costs are up. So I'm increasing my prices. And they're like, well, and we have a little negotiation. And so I get to increase it. But it's very incremental and you can't do it all the time. Um, and so you might feel like, you know, how much more can I really bring in if it's going to be in these increments of five or 10% every year or two? Right. Yeah. If you want to double, if you want to double your profits, you're not going to do it by doubling your hourly rate. You, right. You'll just, you'll scare away everybody. So, and the thing you just described is, is fascinating because you know, you went to them and say, Hey, my costs went up. I have to raise my rates. But if your costs went down, would you go to them and say, Oh, I'm going to decrease my rates. My costs went down. That's right. Customer, clients do not care what your costs are. Like if you, if you move from Alabama to New York city and you say, Oh, you guys, Hey, listen, um, yeah, I moved to New York city, so I have to double my rates. Sorry. <laughs> right. No, uh, it's not your, it's not their problem. But, but a strategy that has worked with me in terms of raising my rates is to tell clients, you are currently my lowest paying client competition. They get right. And if they understand that others are paying more then Ooh, I, I guess, you know, the, you know, the metric has moved in terms of what's the standard amount to pay someone for this sort of work. So that they, they are very willing to accept and, and change, but right. You're just saying, I want to, you know, my expenses went up. They couldn't care less. Right. So what you're doing there is like a psych psychological thing happening there is that you're increasing the value, their perception of value and what you do. Other people are paying more for Ruben than we are. So they're like, well, he must be worth more. And value is very much a perception. There's no, it's incredibly difficult and rare to find a situation where everything is purely bottom line dollars. Like the closest I can see, the closest I've seen is I know a consultant who helps companies with their horrifying AWS bills. And he can very clearly point to, you know, before you hired me, you were paying $4 million a year. After you hired me, you're paying $3 million a year. But still, there's a project involved. You know, a lot of, a lot of the changes that are required you can't just, it's, they're not just like, oops, you forgot to check this check spot, check box. Here, I saved you a million dollars a year. It's, it's more complicated. They have to re-architect things and th there can be a lot involved and there's risks and there's trade-off. And so it's not, it's never a pure bottom line calculation, but you can create a, uh, a story like you did in that example that, that does increase the perceived value of your assistance. And there's just, I mean, 
it's complicated. So I, I don't want to overcomplicate it, especially for people who aren't great at having, um, business conversations in general, you know, they're just sort of good at their, at their, they know their thing. They know what they do. They know how to write JavaScript or whatever it is. And they're not super comfortable with business conversations. The, the way to think about growth is first, first, I think it's important for you to feel stuck. I think, I think it's pretty important for someone to have been working long enough by the hour, let's say, or doing implementation work in general, that they feel like they start to get that feeling like, where's this going? I'm just kind of maxed out. I'm charting water. I'm on a hamster wheel. Like once someone has that feeling, then I find that right around that time is the time when they're ready mentally and emotionally to do something a little bit higher level for their clients. I, like increasing their altitude of involvement is how I talk about it. Once you're, once you're a little bit like, I can remember, I can remember exactly one time I said to myself, I was just rolling my eyes like, oh man, if I have to write another login form for a website, I'm going to blow my brains out. I used to love doing it. There was a period of time when I loved doing it. I was going to do it better and better and better. I was going to make the perfect login form, you know, and this is back PHP three days. So, you know, it wasn't like rails was around and it, I, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the craft. And then there was a point where I was like, I'm like staring at the screen, like, you got to be kidding me. I'm like going to reinvent this wheel again. And I think after a few years of making a sort of plateaued income, that's something related there. It gets to that point where you're like, all right, I'm at this plateau. I'm kind of, I'm sick of the grunt work of my craft and I'm getting more and more attracted to the strategic or the planning or the design parts of my craft, the higher level things, the things that, that, uh, your people at your client, higher people, higher up at your client are interested in. So once you get to that point where you're feeling kind of stuck, then I think it's good to look back over the history of what you've done. And, and probably it's mostly implementation. You probably have mostly been doing implementation work of some kind. You're just, you know, a pair of hands for them that, you know, Hey, we need somebody to execute this website. We need somebody to execute this design on the web or create a PDF or a PowerPoint deck or a set of photos that look like this and adhere to these specs. And along the way, if you've been doing this work long enough, probably you get asked, you can think back to times when clients asked for your opinion about something. What do you think we should do in this situation? And that those, if you can think back and, and identify those things, those are clues to you from your clients where they are telling you that they need you to tell them what to do, or they need your help determining what they should do. So th that's a sign that there's a, either a product or some sort of advisory capacity that you could engage in with your clients. And what I would say, rather than trying to take old clients who are used to paying you a certain amount of money, create a new product that's more advisory, that it answers the kinds of questions you've been asked occasionally in the past and put that sort of front and center on your product site or product page of your site and say, Hey, you know, I offer whatever a, uh, innovation workshop, or I offer, um, ongoing uh, oversight on mobile responsive projects, responsive web design projects or something like that, where you're, you're really not doing your craft, but you are in a sense deciding 
what the people who are going to do it are going to do. So you're doing something that's a little bit more planning, architectural, advisory, strategic, that kind of thing. And then, you know, somebody else builds the login form and, and maybe you check the code or maybe you test it or whatever, but you don't build the thing. You've already built a hundred. You don't need to build another login form. So I'm sure there are people listening, um, especially programmers who are saying, oh, come on, (laughs) right? Like (laughs) the, the value I give my clients is that I'm building them a login form or I'm building them something else, whatever widget it is, right? I'm giving them software that works. How could it be that they won't value that because I'm giving them something amazing? And the answer is yes, you are giving them something amazing, but what to you is trivial. What to you is like, oh yeah, you know, I do this, you know, 10 times a day. I can think of login forms and I can think of how to do a, you know, database architecture to them is not at all trivial to them. That's really hard. Um, and so if you can come in and answer their questions, the actual implementation is, you know, just the detail. And the real value is seeing, hearing, analyzing, and being able to give them advice. And it's hard for yes. engineers to believe this, but it really is true. I mean, I guess th- think of it this way, like most programmers, all programmers nowadays use Stack Overflow, right? Mm-hmm. Stack Overflow is a huge benefit to you as a developer because you can basically ask questions and get answers. So imagine if there were a business version of Stack Overflow. Don't you think businesses would want to pay for that? Well, that's you. <laughs> you are the Stack <laughs> Overflow for them. <laughs> right. They don't have one. Yeah. So like a Stack Overflow for your clients. that are Because that, here's the thing. Should I be even – if the client says, hey, we want you to build this login form for us and you're an engineer and you're like, sweet, I can do that. I can nail that. I'm going to build the best login form ever. The question was never asked, should we be building a login form? Or the way that they describe that they want it, is that the best way? And I know I'm positive that there are engineers listening right now who will have strong opinions about how a login form should work. Should it be mobile friendly? Yes. Should it have a way to reset your password? Yes. Maybe face ID should be integrated. I'm sure, dear listener, you have strong opinions about the way that things should be implemented. When your client comes to you with a laundry list of tasks that they want you to execute, you have strong opinions about the right way and the wrong way. What I'm suggesting is that you charge them for that piece and not, instead of giving that away for free or even fighting about it or, or not even being able to do it the way you think is the right way and being forced to do it in a way that you think is wrong, because there's a lot of value there. And as Ruben pointed out, it's trivially simple for you to do it because, because you've put in 10 years of research into the field or maybe five years. So what's trivial to you is actually, actually super valuable to the client. And by saying trivial to you, that means it's very low cost to you because you've already got all this sunk cost of your education and all of the, whether it was, whether you're self-educated or college educated or somewhere in between, that is, a, that is a sunk cost for you. You've invested that. It's gone. That time and money is gone. And you can capitalize on it by being smart about the things that you are smart about and charging for that smartness. And it's, it, it, I find myself, uh, you know, my focus is pricing, increasing your profits, pricing yourself in a way that's more profitable. And what happens is, just like you alluded People are like, but I can't charge them for that because it's, it feels too easy. Like I didn't do anything, but that's, (laughs) you have to get over that. I find myself just counseling people like, look, you have to get over that. 
the the things that are so easy for you are probably the things that you should be charging for instead of the things that take you a lot of time and effort and labor. So if you, if someone's imagine a situation where a client to use the login form example, you know, there's a, there's a rails gem, I think it's called devise. So someone could come to you and say, Hey, we need you to build this login form and uh, it needs to have these features. And basically they're not an expert. They have an opinion about login forms from the way that Facebook works or something. And they've got a bunch of mediocre ideas about how it should work. And they have not fully thought it through. They have no idea how complex it is for all of the situations that you can have. And they give you a really bad idea and ask you to implement it. And you look at it and you say, okay, this is going to take me like a hundred hours because this is such a poorly thought out design. You've got a couple of options. You could say, okay, my hourly rate's a hundred bucks an hour. It's going to take a hundred hours. So you're talking about a $10,000 login form. And if I got the zeros right and we can do that, or I can say, listen, give me 500 bucks. I'm going to show you how to install device on your rails app and you can have your internal developers do it. It'll take you 30 minutes. You'll have made a thousand dollars an hour and you'll be done in one day. So the, uh, here's the, here's the rub. The rub is that even though you can be highly profitable at advising them to not reinvent the wheel and just use device or whatever gem or, you know, library or off the shelf or stock photo, whatever it is, that is a lower, usually it's going to be a lower revenue engagement. So your overall sale in this case is only 500 bucks instead of 10,000, but you finished it in 30 minutes. So the profits are insanely high, but the revenue is a lot lower than you're used to. So when you're first starting out, when you're trying to grow from typing semicolons to giving people advice and answering, uh, you know, jumping on standups and doing code review and developing a system architecture and all those things you need to transition. Usually you need to transition into those high, more highly profitable activities because you're not, you don't have a client base that already expects that from you. So you have to, it's almost like building a new business alongside your old business where you change your positioning from someone who executes someone else's plan to someone who helps you come up with a plan in the first place and then either has oversight over the execution, completely hands it off to someone else. Maybe you also do some execution, maybe not, probably not, eventually, definitely not. So you can grow your business by shifting up. So increasing your altitude. So yes, you still do websites. You still, but instead of typing out PHP, you're advising them which gems they should assemble to put together for this, this SaaS that they're trying to build, or you're creating a system architecture or disaster recovery plan or, or these things that only you as someone who's been an expert in the field for five, 10 years would be able to do. So I guess my, my question with this sort of thing is generally, okay, like obviously I'm on board with the whole, um, you know, give, giving them advice can be both profitable and easy and increases profits dramatically and so on and so forth. But okay, let's say I know I'm an expert in doing something or even a few things. I can't just like call up a company and say, hi, I'm an expert. You need me. Um, pay me lots of money for it. Like how do you find those companies whose pain is such that they're willing to pay you a lot? Does it grow yeah, out I of mean, other consulting engagements? 
Yeah, I mean, I mean, the question is, how do you do marketing? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, there's a million ways to do marketing. So, but you first have to decide that you're going to move into, you know, first you have to be sick of doing implementation, pretty much sick of it. You have to be like, I've maxed out my career growth path at implementation. I'm going to make $140,000 a year working like a dog for the rest of my life. Maybe I'll have cost of living increases, but that's about it. I might as well just go take a desk job. So once you're sick of it, then you and then you have to decide, okay, I'm going to start shifting into this lower labor, higher value position, which is why you have, this is this, this is why I beat the drum against hourly billing. You can't make that move and continue to bill hourly, or you'll put yourself out of business because this stuff is going to take you days instead of months. So you have to be charging for value in order to even consider doing this or there, it, or it makes no sense. So if you're imagining trying to bill for this by the hour and it doesn't make sense, it's because it, it, you can't do that. So you have to be charging on a value basis. You have to set fees that are commensurate with the outcome, not the level of effort on your part. And once you've sort of made that decision, then you can start to, you know, decide what your value proposition is. And, you know, for me, lately it's like, okay, I help credit unions increase member engagement. Member engagement is an important metric to credit unions, something they care about. It's notice that it's completely non-specific to a technology. It's just membering. It's a, it's a metric they care about. I might do that by improving their, uh, telling them how to improve their mobile web experience, or I might do that by telling them how to create a, uh, a voice application for, a, you know, one of these new, uh, I, I'm trying not to say A L E X A out loud, oh. <laughs> it, um, but you get the idea. It, it could be, it's basically user experience stuff for a modern technology landscape that I, I turn around into a business problem in their, in their, uh, world. So if you, um, once you've decided to do that and you say, okay, I am going to do something a little bit more advisory, then you do all the marketing, you know, you set up your messaging and you, uh, you come up with a positioning statement that articulates that new position. You update your website to reflect that position. You perhaps speak at conferences that your buyers would attend. So there's going to be higher level executives. You're not going to be talking to lead devs anymore. You're not going to be talking to project managers anymore. You're going to be talking to directors, VPs, SVPs, C-suite executives. You got to move up the organization, increase your altitude of who you work with. And those people have bigger budgets. They have bigger risks. They have bigger, um, fears, not bigger fears, I suppose, but the fear their, their risks affect an entire organization underneath them and not just one person who's, you know, a junior developer. Well, you just described there sounds, uh, you went through very quickly and I understand what you're talking about, but, um, I mean, so a lot of us technical people, we go to technical conferences and we hobnob with the developers who are there. Um, so you're saying, should we go to, we, I, I realize this is like a marketing thing and more of sort of a tactic thing than a strategy thing. Like the strategy is I want to move higher up in the value chain so I can be paid more mm-hmm. and even do more interesting work. But you're talking about meeting people who even I, like, I mean, I do all this training at high, you know, large companies. I mean, when was the last time I spoke with a, you know, a senior vice president at a medium to large company? Never. Mm-hmm. Right. It's just like mm-hmm. not on my radar. So I'm sort of curious, like, how, how do I get in there? How do I know who to talk to, where to go? Well, first you have to find out where they are. So if they, if they go to 
a particular conference, then go to that conference. Like, like you said, most people who start out in tech attend conferences with their peers. So, you know, back in the day I would attend FileMaker developer conferences. Those are, those are the conferences I used to go to every year as an attendee. And then eventually I spoke at the FileMaker developer conferences a, a number of times, I think in some years twice. And then I went solo. I was more of a web guy after that. And I started speaking and I was very into my craft at the time. I was definitely doing implementation work. That was all, that was most all I did. And I would still, I would go and and speak at web conferences. So like web unleashed and, um, uh, you know, whatever, all the web conferences, I can't even uh, like blanking on all the names. There've been so many of them. So, but the, the people there were not my buyers. The people there were, were more like students, honestly. So I'm up there talking about, you know, responsive web design and why designers in the room should be convincing their bosses that that's an important thing for them to be allowed to do. And, or people who are independent, who should be selling that to their clients instead of the sort of monolithic desktop designs that people have been, um, uh, putting in the world at that time. And what sometimes happens was that I would get introduced to a company, you know, like a lead dev or something would be in attendance. And then they would say to their manager, we have to hire this guy to come in and do a training or. Uh, one notable occasion I was speaking at a huge conference, uh, Adobe max, which is just a gigantic conference. And, and there were a bunch of actual buyers in the room. There were a bunch of executives in the room and I had, uh, you know, a, a leading telecom, a, a, an SVP from a leading telecom, like ran over and was like, we have to have you come in and, and look at something we're wrestling with. So, so that's just real. it's, so yes, when you first start out, you're probably going to be speaking to your peers, attending conferences with your peers. You know how to talk to them. You guys have a shared language, you guys and gals. It, it's like you're part of the same tribe. When you want to make this shift, you are going to leave your old tribe. Like you're not going to continue to be like uh, a dev, like, like neckbeard guy at the Unix convention. You, you, this is one of the things that you're going to be getting sick of. So like when I said you get sick of this income level, then you're going to move into a different crowd of people and you're going to, you got so the, the higher level executives that you alluded to earlier, you got to find out where they hang out. It might be a conference. It might not be a conference. It might be a publication. It might be a forum online. It might be trade associations. It, you get, it depends. It's different for every, every type. And that's where you start hanging out, which is another reason it's, it's surprising how many things are tying into this particular conversation. I didn't realize, didn't expect this, but this is why I say you should pick a vertical market that you like because you're going to be hanging out with them. You're oh, not going to just like yeah. show yes. up. Yeah. So if you're not into the typical dentist personality, do not pick dentists as a vertical. If you're cool with that and that's your, that's your, that's your jam, dentists, are your jam and you, you get them then it's fine. But don't pick one you don't like. It's, it's sort of you're like spend um, a lot of time with them. It's sort of like what, what you tell uh, graduate students when they're choosing a dissertation topic, choose something you really, really like now, because you will get sick of it. Mm -hmm. And so like, uh, don't don't uh, endanger your project, uh, you know, your dissertation, because 
after two years of working, you say, oh, I can't stand to think about this anymore. For you, the listeners of Freelancer Show, Loot Crate is offering an opportunity to save 10% on any new subscription at LootCrate.com. Just enter the promo code BRIDGE10 for 10% savings. Loot Crate is one of my favorite things. Every month I get a box in the mail, costs less than $20, and it comes with all kinds of goodies. I have stuff from just looking at my shelf, Batman, Spider-Man, Ninja Turtles, Back to the Future, Lord of the Rings, Star Wars, and much, much more. So if you're a geek, a gamer, anything like that, and you want cool stuff to put around your office, cool t-shirts, comic books, etc., then definitely check out Loot Crate. To save 10% on your new subscription, go to lootcrate.com slash ruby. Again, that's lootcrate.com slash ruby to save 10% on any new subscription. Enter the promo code BRIDGE10 for 10% savings. Right. And that had a big part to play when I picked credit unions because if people, I'm imagining people, most people don't have like direct experience with people who work work at credit unions, but they're very much my kind of people, even though it's a financial institution. So like most banks and invest, you know, investment banks or retail banks are not typically staffed with my kind of people. It's a lot more three piece sooty than, than my taste, but credit unions are very hippie, crunchy tree huggery in general, because it's kind of like a different mission. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they don't have shareholders. They are not profit driven in that way. It's, it's just very different. And I, I dig them. I get along with them. I like it. So when you're, when you are, but it's an uncomfortable, it's an uncomfortable transition to put yourself through. It's kind of like going to another country where you don't speak the language. You are giving up a sense of Mm, coolness, power, mastery, like, like, you know, Ruben, you're, you're a multilingual kind of guy as you first, when you first started learning, you know, spending time in China and learning Mandarin, there had to be a phase that you went through where you felt like you sound, where you felt like you sounded stupid. Oh, I still feel like I sound stupid, but, um, yeah, yeah. It's an, it's an overwhelming feeling of, yeah, powerlessness. Right. Like, yeah, I'm sure I'm doing something wrong. I'm sure I'm saying something wrong. I'm sure they're just making fun of me. And yeah, I guess if you move into a new vertical, indeed, you will make those mistakes. But and how do you how do you do that? Like, how do you personally deal with that? I just laugh at myself a lot. Yes, exactly. That's the only way to do it. You go in and you say things that are foolish and you're like, ha ha ha. Oops. You know, you just you you go in knowing you're going to make mistakes and sort of budging that into your, I don't know, emotional expenditures. (laughs) <laughs> Very well put. Exact. That's exactly right. So when you're making this transition, don't plan on feeling like you can give a dis, you know, just uh, give a soapbox spiel to this audience until you kind of know what you're talking about. So like, and it's going to take a little time, and it's going to be uncomfortable. You're going outside of your comfort zone, and for that, you will be rewarded handsomely. But it is uncomfortable. So at, at first, but if you don't pretend like it's not a big deal, and if you and if you go in with a little sense of humor, and you just you just like okay, this is just part of the process. It's totally normal. I'm going to I'm going to go to this conference of like I'm trying to think of one like um, I spoke at Mertech, which is basically uh, the the leading conference for technology in the food and sort of uh, restaurant space. Wow. And 
Yeah. And you speak to a room. Full, I was literally the only mobile guy at the entire conference. It was a huge conference. There was, there were no other talks on mobile technology. So like they have phones, but that's about as far as it goes in terms of knowing anything about mobile technology other than you. Right. And, and a lot of them had mobile apps and stuff, but it was, it was a bunch of CIOs in suits and ties, like a full on like adult executive and, you know, and, and sitting in this room and the way that I, I don't know if this is, we're going a little far out of scope, but, but the way I would deal with that is to just, just be like, not just not just be totally authentic. I'm not pretend like I know their business, but I know what I know. And I know what good user experience is on mobile. And I would go, you know, I had a presentation put together. I, I worked on it a little bit. I actually worked on it quite a bit with the organizer of the conference to make sure I had the language right in the, in the description. And then, you know, she went through my slides and she's like, okay, this tracks, this tracks, this will, this will, they'll get this. I was like, okay, cool. So I had a, tra I had a translator help me basically. And so then I had a, a, a degree of confidence when I went in there. And the thing that is, I think, wildly underrated in a situation like this, although really it applies to all consulting, is to be able to ask really good questions and really listen to the answers. Yes. So, yes. So you don't, you don't have to imagine that you're going to go up and like present like 60 minutes of, of you talking and have everybody like hanging on every word. Really you should be asking tons of questions, perhaps not in a, a situation where you're up on stage. Obviously you can't just ask questions the whole time, but, uh, in a, you know, afterwards when you get down and, uh, off the stage and people are like giving you their cards and asking you follow-up questions and stuff, I would talk as little as possible. And I would just ask them business questions like, well, why are you thinking about doing mobile? Like, obviously I, you know, I'd say I'd sort of kiddingly be like, well, obviously I think it's a big deal, but why do you guys think it's a big deal? Like what, how does it, in what way is it a big deal for you guys? Cause there are about a hundred ways you could imagine it and just ask lots of questions and actually listen to the answers and be genuinely curious about them. Again, it helps if you like them because it, it's easier to be curious about someone who you like. Right. Right. Absolutely. And, and I mean, like I get, I get this sense about you, but like, I mean, I definitely, I'm sort of fascinated by stuff in general. Like it's very hard to find a topic that doesn't interest me. And so if I were going to like a technology and food conference, there would be something there that I'd be like, wow, this is so cool. And that excitement and interest helps you to then engage in conversation and to listen to them. Right. If it, if it sounds, I don't know if it's like a, I don't know, a wallpaper paste conference. Oh my God. Right. Like I, I'm, I'm sure such a thing exists. Right. You know, I, I'm not going to be able to even pretend to be super enthusiastic and happy about talking about it. And so I'm going to be less likely to talk, listen, engage, and then be able to figure out what the value is. Mm -hmm. um, I, I want to pick up on something you're saying here, though, because you're talking a lot about speaking at conferences. And I've, I've often suggested to people that one of the best ways to sort of get your name out and to have people discover who you are is to speak at conferences because you are an authority. And people like it's a marketing strategy. But basically, if you can get in front of people at a real conference, and speak to them about your technical topic, they'll see you as, oh, the guru I met or who I heard speak. And then they will gravitate to you and, and like ask you for advice. But mm -hmm. is that true? Like I know it's true for training. Is it true that people have come up to you in conferences after you've given talks and asked, suggested that you do consulting work for them? 
Oh yeah. I've gotten a hundred thousand deal, dollar deal, like, like six figure bigger than a hundred thousand dollar deals, like walking right off the stage. It doesn't happen all the time. It, you know, it happens once every five years or something, but it, yes, absolutely. So I'm Philip who, uh, he's got a, uh, sort of a microsite. I think it's called trustvelocity.com that has a list of 40 something marketing tactics that have that he's rated on a different scale. So like, like how hard it is, how, um, how experienced you need to be, how powerful it is, the kinds of what you can expect from it. And speaking at conference, like in real life counts for a lot. So like if you show up and, and you're the sage on stage for 45 minutes and then take Q&A, everybody in that room, whether they like it or don't, they're going to know what it's like to work with you because your personality, there's no hiding your personality in a situation like that. You are, you, it's a, it's a relatively stressful situation for most people. And how you deal with that is going to be plain as day to everybody in the room. So then, and then, and that's, that's never mind your ideas. It's just how you are, like what it's like to work with you, how you chose to dress, how you speak, how you move, uh, how you crack a joke or how you don't crack a joke or that you're sarcastic or that you swear or, you know, all these things that have nothing to do with your topic, but do have to do with working with you are plain as day. You know, so, so somebody at the end of a 60 minute talk, if they're, if, if you click with them, you're going to have clicked hard. And if you didn't click with them, they're going to be the first person out the door. So it's very, it's easily the most powerful trust building activity, you know, in terms of inbound marketing, it's got to be the number one most powerful persuasive out there but it doesn't scale at all. It's a lot of work and, uh, and not everybody is really that great at it. It's a short list of people who are comfortable doing it. I shouldn't say that they're not great at it, but it's a short list of people who are comfortable doing it on a regular basis. So, and I was just using that one because that's the most high pressure one when you're, when you're rubbing elbows with people in this new audience that you maybe feel a little awkward around. Uh, that's, that's the, I was just pick, I just picked conferences because that you, you mentioned like, what about the awkwardness? Like, what would I say to these people or what would we talk about? Yeah, but, but I think it's still, I mean, it's, it's still a good place to sort of, it's that intersection of, um, people who want advice. They don't necessarily need implementation. They'll need it eventually, but they're looking for advice and ideas and insights. They go to this conference to the talks, just sort of open their minds to what are the possibilities. And if you're the person up there saying, here are the possibilities, then they're going to gravitate toward you because you've just shown them some some potential things. I mean, I was just speaking with um, a company about doing some like online training material for Python. And they said, well, what do you think about X and Y and Z? And I just sort of came up with some ideas. And, and they were like, whoa, we never thought of that. Now, it's just that I've been steeped in this and I've thought of it and they haven't been thinking of it. So, like, it so was you, a great you match. you gave away the strategy work for free. <laughs> well, basically, but it's like, oh, fine, to some degree, to some degree. Oh, I'm, I'm just, I'm just, <laughs> but yeah, yeah, I hadn't thought I about that. The same thing. <laughs> but that's a great example when a client who's thinking about hiring you asks you what they should buy from you or if they should buy from you or what they should buy from someone else. That's a, that's a sort of a higher level 
engagement. I'm not saying you should charge them for that at all. I'm not saying no, that no, no, that's all. fine. It's just, fine. <laughs> but that's an example of of one of those situations where that that should pop into your mind, like, huh, I wonder if there's a there's probably no market for that product. But this idea of like of of helping people who organize training to even know what's current. Okay, that's a total stretch, but I mean, it boils down, marketing boils down really to two things, writing and speaking, and you could boil that down to one thing, which is publishing. So you need to get your ideas in the world. And the two big ways to do that are speaking, whether it's in person or on a podcast or on a webinar or a conference call, or you need to write. And that's a, a blog, a mailing list, uh, a book, articles, um, you know, all of those things. You're either going to be blog, you're either going to be writing, or you're going to be speaking, or you're going to be doing both. And and it's a lot of work to do all of those things. So you're going to want to find the one that you're the best at, the one that you're most comfortable with. Probably focus on that one, maybe a secondary one as well. And this goes back to the positioning stuff that Philip's always talking about. It's like you need to pick a thing that you sort of stand for. A particular value proposition because it takes time for all this stuff to work six months maybe a year and if you're just all over the map the whole time it's not going to do anything it's a giant waste of time so you kind of need to know what you stand for the value proposition that you're going to be bringing it makes it easier to pick that if you pick a target market so all the things we talk about all the time are sort of all coming together here where you know you pick someone you like uh, you find a problem that they have that you can help with, or maybe it's obvious to you and you sort of put your flag in the ground and say, this is my thing that I'm going to care about. And then you write about it or speak about it or both in whatever media is most, uh, frictionless for you where you can put out a lot of stuff. And I mean, it's all hard, but that's really all there is to it. I mean, it's all, it's a lot of work, but it's not, conceptually complicated very nice so so what sorts of things and maybe this is like uh you know a little general but like i guess we've been talking this abstract about giving companies advice can you give some sort of concrete examples of what kind of services you can offer to a company that are not implementation that are more diagnosis architecture high level stuff that they're willing to yeah. pay for Mm -hmm. Sure. So uh, I'll just pick from my personal history. I, I have like tons of students that I could come up with too, but personal history. Um, I had one client who, who needed to move to, they needed to have a presence in mobile. They had a really weird situation. I'm getting, there's an NDA thing happening here too. So I don't want to get too specific, but, but basically for reasons that I agreed with, they needed to move to a cloud architecture from an extremely on on premise situation. And they had no idea how to do that. They had never used any cloud provider whatsoever. They had previously had a bunch of individual locations that were disconnected and, you know, local server environments all over the world that weren't even connected to the internet in some cases. And yeah. So it was, it was a really interesting challenge and they needed to come up with an asynchronous cloud architecture. So, uh, we did, you know, so I designed that basically we worked together to, you know, I, I made sure that 
it was a collaboration. I, I was in charge of the stuff that I knew about and they were in charge of the business stuff. So like, here are the business requirements that we have. They didn't, I mean, what I was doing was so esoteric that they didn't even begin to try to tell me how they wanted it. Um, they just, you know, like somebody might say, make the logo bigger. You know, it was, there was none of that. And, and what I ended up delivering to them was like a PDF with a bunch of boxes and lines on it. And, you know, a, a, a report about you know, a short report about like, okay, here's how the process would probably go. First, we would, how, how the migration would happen. Although, so, okay, could, I just, just I mean, so imagine if that went wrong. Oh, right. You're not going to get calls in the middle of the night because of the bugs, that's for sure. That's true. Yeah. Um, no, it's, it's clearly there. It's a huge value. And I'm not trying to like, you know, uh, say what you did was, was a good or worthwhile at all. At the same time, you know, I think a lot of people say, oh, well, giving advice, it just means sort of they call me up and say, should we move to the cloud? And I say, yes. And they pay me $10,000, right? So it is more involved than that. It is actually using your technical, um, uh, expertise, but you're communicating how someone else should actually go and start fidgeting with the servers and buy them and connect them and configure them. You're just saying you should do it in this and this way. Yeah. I mean, sometimes mm -hmm. it's, I mean, that, that was a fairly elaborate undertaking, but I don't think it took me more than two weeks, you know, but there, there are other situations where people hire me on just on a monthly basis as an advisor. And they do ask me questions that are like, you know, should we be worrying about this? And I'd be like, no, here's why. Like, I would never just say yes or no, but I would, sometimes I'd say it depends, you know, let me ask you a few questions about, you know, uh, how much does it really cost you? Yeah, this is a classic one. They'd be like, should, should we have redundant backups of all our databases? Should we have automated failover to another live copy of the database? That's, I, I, that's a question that's come up repeated times. And I'd say, well, we can certainly do that. Uh, it, and it would be nicer for the users, but it's also going to be very expensive. And, you know, from both a development standpoint and from a, a just a, a monthly cost standpoint, you now have two databases instead of one, which is one of the more expensive cloud components. So, you know, if it if it's going to increase, and I would say, you know, how much is it, is it, would it cost for the site to be down for two hours? And they would say, you know, whatever, a million dollars. And I'm like, all right, then then it's probably worth having that automatic failover because it's going to cost you a lot less than a million dollars. But if they say 500 bucks, if the site's down for an hour, I'd be like, well, then you'll, you'll never make your money back by having live, you know, hot swapping of databases if you're only losing 500 bucks an hour, like we could spin up a whole new, a whole new thing manually and it'll only cost you, you know, 2000 bucks, you know, and it's probably never going to happen. So wait for it to happen. And if the, the system isn't mission critical and it's just not that big a deal, you know, not everything needs to have live failover. So, you know, I'd ask a few questions and we'd come to a consensus and then I would give them my reasoning and then they would decide. And then someone else would do it <laughs> they, and they might say, who, who should we get to do this? And I put them in touch with someone. Right. I mean, I, I guess I had some of the closest I've done to that recently is a company called me up and uh, said, well, what they did was they called me up and said, we need your help in moving to Git. We need to move to Git right away. I was like, <laughs> oh, okay, I, I can help you with that. So then I show up at their offices and I helped them a little bit about a year before with some stuff, just sort of evaluating the company. Um, and I got there, I'm like, so, so what's the deal with Git? Like, I'm, I, I love Git, but, but what do you need it for? And they said, well, basically, <laughs> there was a ransomware that took down all of our computers in the office, and we didn't have backups of the old stuff 
like of old versions of all of our software. So really what we need to do is we need to make sure that we never lose our data again. And the, we've heard the easiest way to do a backup is to use Git and to use GitHub. So we want to use that. Is, yeah, this is perfect. This is a perfect example. So like I said, okay, like here's what we're going to need to do. Like if you really want to do this and here are the pluses, here are the minuses. Um, they agreed, okay, definitely a plus is that way the minuses. Um, I gave them some quick Git training. Um, and they, I, they now contact me on occasion on Slack with, hey, such and such doesn't work. By the way, why does such and such not work? Because they decide to only do like two hours of Git training for three or four of their employees who then were going to pass it all along to everyone else. So they didn't quite want to implement everything that I suggested, but they needed something. They were very appreciative of what I did. And now we have an ongoing relationship. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great example. I mean, of of them self-prescribing, you know, like a client comes to you with a self-diagnosis and they're like, okay, uh, we need help with this thing. And then if, you know, I could, I could easily imagine that conversation of go- going somewhere else and saying like, okay, if that's really what you want, then Git is probably not a backup solution. It's probably not what you want. But if there's a combination of reasons, then maybe it is. There are lots of different ways to solve this problem. And it caught, it's always a, a lot of it comes down to economics or available resources one way or the other, whether it's bodies or dollars. So, you know, you have to help them make, cause you got to imagine, like imagine any situation where you feel like an idiot. So for me, it's like home repair. I'm a complete yes. moron when it comes to home repair. I somehow had, had the image of you as like a super, like super repair man. So no, I'm very happy to no. hear you come down to earth on that. Cause I'm totally no. there. I, I can, I have a little bit of electrical experience cause I used to work on my own electric guitars, but that is like comically simple. Like I can <laughs> hang a lamp. I can, I can hang a light fixture and I hate every second of it. It's I'm horrible around the house. So when I, you know, we had major construction done like in 2012 or 13, I didn't, I, I don't want the guy asking me how I want the studs in the wall. I, I just want him to tell me I, I just want to tell him the outcome that I want and just do it. Like to, here's what I want that the bathroom to look like. I want the bathroom. I want the experience of the bathroom to be like this. I want enough room for my legs. I want the door to not block the back door. I want, you know, there's some things I've got some clear instructions, but outside of that, I don't care. I just care. And then I'll be like, well, how long is it going to take? How much is it going to cost? Right. To have these, like, to be able to sit down without my knees pressed against the wall. Okay. Yeah. Be like this. All right. Cool. What are my, do I, are there any options? Yeah. You can, you know, you can go with this kind of a sink or that kind of a sink. Uh, a couple of things, but he didn't, he didn't give us a, you know, give us a giant menu of things to choose from. We just hired the most expensive guy based on his, uh, his personality very much on his personality. Cause this guy is going to be living in our house for like six weeks. Wow. He's going to be in our house every day for, it was like six weeks. And, uh, you know, so personality was a big one. There was one guy who was cheaper, but he's just complete jerk. And we're like, I'm not hanging out with you. And, you know, and he had, uh, he was the guy that we hired was recommended by a friend who I trusted. And he had done work on some, relatively high. He had some really nice portfolio pictures of the kind of work he was capable of. And that was, you know, it didn't, everybody kind of had those, but this guy also had them, but there were a lot of considerations besides, uh, 
the specifics and the cost. And what's important here, I think, is to imagine yourself, dear listener, in a situation where you are basically clueless, but you have to write a check. Car repairs right. another one. Car repair. No, classic, classic example. No idea how long anything takes. None. None. Well, what they're doing, so, right? So they tell you, well, we like, you know, we replace the, the defibrillator. And you're like, oh, yeah. I didn't know my car had a defibrillator in it. And they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Right? And, and you have yeah. no way of saying yes, no, good, bad. Right. Yeah, you have no, nothing. But, but, but when you bring the car in, you have a sense of how much it's going to cost or how much you want it to cost, even though you have no idea how much work it's going to be. You just know you don't want to spend more than 500 bucks because you don't even care about the car that much. Because you'd rather, you'd rather exchange the car, whatever it's called, trade in the car for a different one if it's going to be more than 500 bucks. If it's going to be 1000 bucks for, for whatever this transmission light is telling me, then I'm not, I don't, don't do it. I'm just going to trade the car in and get a new car. So it's weird because it's just a great example of like two things. One, you have no idea how much it costs and you don't care how much it costs the people who are doing the repair. Like if they come to you and say, oh, this is going to be so hard. Like, I don't care. I'm not spending more than 500 bucks on it. So, okay. So that's one thing. But the other thing is you, you want advice. Of course, the one that we've, we've gotten is doctors. Like you want a second opinion. You want, you want to know, you want to tell them the symptoms and you want the symptoms to be gone. And, and the process of how the symptoms are going to get gone can matter to you. You know, in the case of a home repair, they might be cutting corners in the electrical inside the walls or they might be doing, well, we can do it for cheaper if we don't get a permit, but that's illegal and you could get sued. You know, you do want to make sure that everything's like uh, on an ethical footing that you're comfortable with and and it's on a comfort footing that you're comfortable with if it's going to take a long time because of like the guy being in your house or the therapy that the doctor prescribes is just too uncomfortable, even though it's the fastest one, maybe you want a slower one that's less painful so there's all kinds of value in, in that sort of advisory level. And, and again, this, but this goes back to the very beginning when I was saying like, you kind of need to be sick of doing the implementation before you, your brain will open up to these possibilities. And when, once you do, if you look back over your history, you will see that you've been doing them. It's stuff you already do. Right. It's just, you just need to start charging for them. Right, right. It's only, I guess it's similar in some ways. You know, Brennan and Kai talk about a lot of that road mapping. Um, yeah. And, mm-hmm. and a, a lot of people are like, come on. I can go, like, it's pitched as you can get paid to do proposals. And people are incredulous, right? Like, what? I'm going to go, I'm going to give a proposal, and someone's going to pay me money for it? What are they, idiots? But it turns out that that proposal stage is where you we, like, sort of go through a lot of the, like, the nitty-gritty of what needs to be done. And you can give a really good, if you can give a good analysis of what needs to happen. And that's worth a lot often. Sure, of course, to the right client. So when people say that, two, one of two things is going on. One, when somebody says that you got to be crazy if someone's ever going to pay for a roadmap, one of two things is happening. Either they're just flat wrong or they have the kind of, they have attracted the kind of cheap clients who view them as a pair of hands who would, would literally, they're right, they would never like my bad clients would never pay me to do roadmaps. You, okay, you're right. Bad clients won't. But the right kind of clients will. And they're out there. People, I mean, people on this podcast, the others that you mentioned, plenty of people have experienced selling diagnostics. It's 
extremely valuable to the right people, especially people who are in a large organization, large ish, you know, even, even if, you know, uh, technically large is really large, but if we just said like, if somebody has got 200 employees, if they've got payroll for 200 employees, they've got money, you know, they've got problems and, and de-risking situations that they're facing that, that somebody higher up in the organization cares about is worth a lot of money. So I'm just telling you, like you can disbelieve it as much as you want, dear listener, but they're there, they're out there. So if, if you, once you're sick of typing semicolons and you want to move up the value chain, I promise you that there are people out there for these new services, you know, assuming you know what you're doing and you actually have good experience and, and that, you know, that's a given, but once you put enough time in, I promise you that there are people out there who will value that expertise at an advisory level. And the, and the only remaining trick is to market to them so that they'll be attracted to you. I mean, it's all there is to it. It's, it's a lot of work, but it's, you know, the mind shift honestly is the, is the toughest thing. You know, uh, just in terms of like companies having money and things. So my, uh, my 14 year old was in, uh, like a high tech and, uh, entrepreneurship, uh, program over the summer. So she had programming, it was an amazing program in any event. Um, so she happened to mention like, oh, they give us all, you know, snacks during the day. It's like a high tech sort of atmosphere. So you have like, you know, snacks in the morning, snacks in the afternoon. She said, and you can have coffee and tea and hot chocolate as much as you want during the day. And my 12 year old son said, you got free hot chocolate as much as you wanted <laughs> all day long. Whoa, like mind blowing. And, um, so like, you know, I've been going to all these different high tech companies. So now I pick, take a picture of the kitchen where I go. I'm like, look, they have free hot chocolate here too. But like these companies. And so today I was at a company where they had like a truly shockingly well stocked kitchen. But the thing is for them, like the investment there is nothing. They have so much money that for what for us is like an incredible grocery run. Like they buy more groceries in a week than I would for my whole family in two months. But that's okay because they have this sort of money and they're willing to spend it because it'll make them more money because people will be there and they'll spend time at work. So in the same way, they have money to spend on you giving them advice and doing things for them. And it's more money than you can possibly imagine because you're an individual and they're a big company. Mm. Yeah, which gets into my whole, I, I did a bunch of emails recently about selling to your own wallet and the problems inherent there. Oh, yeah. If, if, it, it's the same thing. It's like if you're if you're selling to people who have budgets that are eye popping, it's really hard for people to price themselves appropriately. They, they'll be like, that's, that's crazy. I could never price myself that high. Like a big piece of what I do is advise students to simply double their prices. And it's like, and they're like, no, they'll never go for it. And guess what? Somebody just, one of my students just sent me a $500 bottle of scotch because he closed a quarter million dollar deal. Whoa. Whoa. Yeah. I mean, it's not, and we're not talking about a year long engagement. So it works. It works. They are out there. The dollars are out there. If, if your clients truly wouldn't value, you know, if you, first of all, if you're capable of providing good advice, okay, given, and your clients truly will not pay you for that, you have the wrong clients. The right clients are out there and the way to get the right clients is to market and the way to market is through writing and speaking. And it's like a, it's like a crash course 
<laughs> well, let me, let me give an example. I have, I have a friend who's worked for years with nonprofits. Um, and he's like, I don't know. I need to somehow like get clients who pay me more. And I, I tell him, don't work with nonprofits. Now, I would say Israeli nonprofits tend to be on much, much, much more of a shoestring than large American nonprofits, right? If you work for, and I have no idea how good or bad they are to work with, like the American Red Cross is a multi-billion dollar corporation, right? So they're probably similar to mm -hmm. a big company. But, you yeah. know, the, the, the local, uh, I don't know, shoestring uh, uh, food bank, they're not going to be paying you. Right, right. Like they're, they're, just, they're just not going to be giving you what you want. And that doesn't mean they're bad people. They're just a bad they're a bad uh, client for your business. Yeah, it's like uh, I mean, it, it, the nonprofit thing. I think is I think is fine. I hear the same thing all the time. Oh, I'd love to work for nonprofits, but they haven't got any money. And I'm like, well, you're looking at really small ones. Like the local mom and pop pizza place would be a bad client for you too, but Domino's would be a good one. Yes. So yes. it's like there are huge nonprofits. If you go to GuideStar.org, there are some. I'm gonna. Last time I checked, there were like six nonprofits that did a billion in revenue and donations and there were which is not huge i mean that's that'd be a good size for a credit union i think the biggest credit union is something like five four or five billion in assets the, the top 10 uh, are in the over a billion yeah that's a big cutoff for credit unions. credit unions are nonprofit, but they have a billion dollars to play with it's more complicated than that but they're 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 doing plenty they have plenty of money for to support an independent consultant who has valuable information for them. It's it's just a fact. The tricky part is, you know, how am I going to attract them? And the answer is marketing. It's like, okay, well, what tactics do I engage in? It's like, well, first pick a position and so that you, you so that your materials will revolve around each other so they all uh, make sense together and you can create a body of work and the body of work will attract the client. You know, it's like it's just this it's a straightforward process. But, you know, I think it it all boils down to like to making that mind shift away from from doing implementation to doing something a little bit more uh, strategic. How, how long does it take? So let's say I choose a vertical. Let's say I, I really do have expertise and brilliant advice to offer in that vertical and they have money to spend. How long should I expect to have to be doing my marketing, making my inroads until I can start landing some decent uh, decent clients? Yeah. So, I mean, there's two ways to answer that question. One is that it takes 10 years, but you've probably already done that part. So the question is, you know, cause you need to build up all of that expertise. So, okay, you've got the expertise, you're good at something. And maybe it's, maybe it's only three years because you're a blockchain person, or maybe it's only five years because you're a react, or maybe it's only 10 years, whatever, seven years because of iOS, whatever it is. So like you need to get to a point where you've got some expertise and you have some, some advice that's worth giving. When, once you make the change and you say, okay, I'm going to start marketing to this higher uh, altitude person, Philip tends to say six to 12 months. And I would say that's about right. Uh, but I would also say that it goes by a lot faster than you expect and that you can get some early, uh, one, you know, th once it's that, I think 12 to 18 months when you're f really feeling it and you're like, wow, this is a totally different way to work. But probably because the thing is, if you if you decide on January 1st that you're going to be you're going to start moving to an advisory capacity, 
you need to figure out where your buyers go. You need to, if it's a conference, you need to, to try to get a spot, a spot at the conference. The conference might not even be for six months. Uh, then, you know, once you get there, once you put that talk together and do that gig, you could get business right that day. So, you know, I would say the, the probably the fastest you could, it depends on the market though. I mean, if they're podcast listeners or if they read Harvard, Harvard business review or whatever it is, you're going to have, you're probably going to have some lead time from where you're creating this slightly or perhaps significantly new kind of content and you get it out into the channels. So it takes time for that to kind of work its way through. Like I said, even getting on a podcast, like how far ahead are we recording? Like five weeks. So by the, t by the time you do the, the, uh, the interview, it's not going to show up for another month. So these things do take time, but it, it, if you do pick a positioning first and you stick with it, then you create a body of work and you end up with that flywheel kind of feeling where you can just do less and less effort and it, it continues to move at the same rate. So it's tougher to get the wheel spinning at first. And it, to be realistic, I, I switched my mentoring program to be six month minimum for this reason, because it's hard to, especially when you're not doing it full time, you know, you already have a job and you need to engage in this new style of marketing activity. It, it takes about six months to start to feel it, uh, feel that first flywheel revolution happen. Very neat. I think we're, we've gone a bit long today. Not that that's bad. This is really, really been interesting. Um, do you have any last points before we, we should probably get into picks? No, I think, I think I've, <laughs> I beat on it pretty <laughs> good. It's like, you need to, de you need to be decide, decide first that you're going to make the shift. That's the big thing. And then once you do it, the rest of it is just details. Very good. Uh, okay, so what picks you got for us this week, Jonathan? Do you run your own freelance business? Or maybe you're thinking about picking up some business on the side. Well, then you need FreshBooks. FreshBooks is the quickest and easiest way to get invoices out to your clients. It's easy to use. It works anywhere, available from any device, uh, on the desktop, iPhone, iPad, Android, and all of your data is backed up and secure. And it makes it really easy to get organized and get paid. You'll be tracking time, logging expenses, and invoicing your clients in no time. You can also save time billing, freeing up several days per month to focus on the work that you love, and you get paid faster. FreshBooks customers are paid on average five days faster because there's a link on the invoice that says pay me now. And it's a great way to grow your business. Plus, FreshBooks is offering a 30-day trial. That's right, 30-day trial if you try them out. So go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter devchat in the how did you hear about us section. Once again, for a 30-day trial, go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter devchat in the how did you hear about us section. Well, I'm going to start off with a podcasting pick. I have been laughing my face off at a podcast called My Brother, My Brother, and Me for weeks now, maybe maybe months. If, dear listener, you pine for the days when you look nice today, used to publish podcasts, um, you will absolutely love Mabim Bam, as it's called. <laughs> uh, it's just an absolutely hilarious comedy podcast of three brothers who are super fast, super funny, uh, very sarcastic, and completely hilarious. And there's something like two or 300 episodes, so it'd be hard to binge listen all, all the way through it. Really, really good stuff. And, uh, then I'm just going to pick, uh, my usual value pricing bootcamp.com, 
which is uh, touches on a lot of the things we talked about today, which is a sort of a step-by-step, day-by-day um, concept of how to shift from doing implementation work by the hour for doing more strategic engagements that are priced based on value and not the amount of time it takes you to uh, do the thing. So that's valuepricingbootcamp.com, and it's like uh, seven or eight days worth of email. Hope to see you there. Excellent. Um, so I've only got one pick for this week, um, and it's a pretty generic one, which is backups. Use backups. Make backups. Um, <laughs> I got to my computer on Saturday night and was a little horrified to find the disk was full, or so my computer was reporting. I rebooted, and after about five hours of fiddling and rebooting and everything, I finally decided, okay, uh, got got to restore. I mean, my disk was physically fine, but something had gotten corrupted. Um, and luckily, I managed to do the restoration. I have a Mac. I use Time Machine in addition to so so every night I have I have a Time Machine disk, and then I also do a full cloned two separate hard disks, carbon copy cloner every night just in case um, because I had to teach in the morning, and it worked actually much better than expected. The computer was not one hundred percent back uh, when I needed to teach, but if I hadn't had full and complete backups. Boy, I would have been more on edge. Let's say instead of just being on edge all Saturday night, um, I would have been like going totally, completely crazy. So do not put it off. Do not skimp on it. Better to have many, many more backups than you need than too few, because your computer will fail at some point, or you will fail your computer, uh, <laughs> more likely, <laughs> and uh, you don't want to be stuck. Um, wow, scary. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. But we're, we're, we're doing okay. And um, because I did not back up my downloads directory, uh, it's like the junk drawer of my computer, right? So it's like <laughs> 200 gigs free. Holy cow, what was I having in there? I have no idea. But I don't miss it. So <laughs> clearly I should do this right. more often. I should crash my computer more often. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. Well, Jonathan, thank you for another amazing conversation. Thank you all of you for listening. And we'll be back next week on The Freelancer Show. Bye. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.